listening to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Melissa Jacoby, the Scholar-in-Residence for the ABI for Spring 2016 and a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today we're talking with Professor Angela Litwin. Professor Litwin is a law professor at the University of Texas Law School. She's doing innovative research on the use of consumer credit with real-world implications. And the focus for our podcast today will be the intersection of consumer credit with domestic violence. So Angie, your work characterizes coerced debt, that's the term that you've used, uh, as a form of domestic violence. So can you tell us what you mean by coerced debt? Yeah, so coerced debt is debt that somebody involuntarily has taken out through them through duress or fraud. Um, It takes place in a relationship with domestic violence in which the abuser is exerting what's known as coercive control. And coercive control has two characteristics that distinguish it from other domestic violence. One is that the violence is pervasive, and two is that the abuser imposes restraints that are basically designed to undermine the victim's free will. Um, restrictions such as cutting her off from her family and friends, not letting her work, or if she is working, forcing her to turn over income to the abuser. In extreme cases, not letting her leave the house. My research partner and I define coerced debt as any non-consensual credit-related transaction that occurs in a relationship like this. So some examples would be fraud, taking out a credit card in a victim's name without her knowledge, or duress, right, telling the victim to incur debt when she knows that violence will be the result if she refuses. Or there could be a combination where an abuser says, you're signing and she knows there's a threat of violence without giving her a chance to read. So she doesn't know what she's finding, so it has some elements of fraud, but it's also accomplished by duress. And so what is the timing? It sounds like the timing of when the victim even is aware of what's happening can really depend on the, on the, on the circumstance. So when, when do people generally find out about the impact of these transactions? If it's pure fraud, the person might have no idea. But even if it's a scenario that's duress, you know, abusers in this kind of relationship often restrict information access to financial information, so preventing the victim from seeing the mail, not giving the victim access to online passwords. So even if a victim knows, for example, that a coerced credit card exists, she may have no knowledge of the balance or whether payments are being made. As far as we can tell, right, and we don't have perfect data on this, most victims don't find out the full details until they leave the relationship maybe because they see an attorney for a divorce. Attorneys will routinely order credit reports. And sometimes it's not even until they apply for new credit. For example, I interviewed a lawyer who was a victim of course debt, and she didn't find out until she went to go to law school and applied for student loans. So many of our listeners already know the impact of credit transactions on all sorts of life events, but let's just be very clear here that the impact of these credit events may go well beyond borrowing more money. So can you give us more examples of the effects? Well, the big problem beyond borrowing money is damage to credit reports. It appears to be a major consequence, of course, that and people's credit can just be ruined. And as this audience knows, credit reports are now used for obtaining employment, housing, utilities, insurance. And so what this means is that when a victim tries to leave an abusive relationship, she cannot get a job or housing, which are crucial to starting a life away from the abuser. And many people think this is contributing to longer shelter stays, 
or even to people returning to the abuser because they can't get jobs or housing and so can't make it on their own. The research you've done is really incredible, and there are links available to get all the details on the study for uh, for our listeners. Um, but I, I thought we'd talk a fair amount about what can be done today, especially for the, the institutional players in the bankruptcy system and the consumer credit system, even if there aren't any statutory amendments, and we'll, we'll get to that. How can various parties respond today if they are worried that there is a, a coerced debt issue going on. And we'll start with lawyers. Um, and I want to think about both debtors' lawyers and creditors' lawyers, what, what they can be thinking about and do. Yes. Well, I'll start with the creditor's side because what they can do applies generally to all the parties. The first step is to, to listen when someone calls your client saying that her ex incurred debt through fraud or duress. That's her credibility, but do so with the knowledge that coerced debt is real and may be quite prevalent. My research partner and I conducted a survey of callers to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and we found that nearly one-third, that's 32%, had experienced coerced debt. And for a number of reasons, our estimate is probably on the low side. So on the debtor side, I would say ask, but also think about safety. Debtors' attorneys often order their clients' credit reports, and one thing they can do that's really important is to ask if it's safe to do so. Entering the address of a victim who's hiding from the abuser could end up giving away her location, and so it's important to ask even before ordering credit reports generally. And then as a second step, most bankruptcy attorneys will not have the expertise to screen for domestic violence, but they can review clients' credit reports asking about fraud. Fraud is the important one to screen for now because there are some current legal remedies. And I write about those in the articles that will be posted. So if most of a client's debt was incurred through fraudulent coerced debt, she may need other remedies and may not need bankruptcy. So that could change the legal advice. Finally, I would say offer advice for restoring clients' credit ratings after coerced debt and or after bankruptcy. I recently conducted a study in which I interviewed 53 debtor attorneys, and many of them said they did this, but I think it could be, that practice could be applied more broadly. So what about courts? Now, we are in this audience often most familiar with bankruptcy courts, but family law courts are dealing with this. Small claims courts surely have these issues in their court, whether they're aware of it or not. So what can courts do and what can judges do to take into account your findings and analysis? So, so I'll start with bankruptcy judges. My first point is the same as two attorneys, right? Recognize that this is real and may be quite prevalent. I have spoken with a few judges who are aware, of course, that and are certainly aware of domestic violence among people filing for bankruptcies, but having broader awareness would be helpful. The other is a um, legal point. So, which is to don't apply Section 523A2 broadly, right? That's the provision that makes non-dischargeable debts incurred via fraud. The provision is obviously targeting debts incurred fraudulently by the debtor, but because nobody ever considered coerced debt, it could be read to cover any debt that was fraudulently incurred, for example, by the debtor's ex-spouse or partner. So it's important to, to read that provision in light with, of uh, the debtor's fraud and not in light of any fraud. So are you concerned about vicarious liability for the victim? 
Yeah, I'm concerned because because Section 523.82 just says debts incurred by fraud. It doesn't say by the debtor, even though that's obviously what the drafters were thinking because it never occurred to anybody that somebody else would have fraudulently incurred the debtor's debt. So I think it's important to keep that to fraud by the debtor and not say, oh, this debt was fraudulently incurred by somebody else and therefore is not dischargeable. Well, especially when, yeah, sure, when the debtor is the one that actually ultimately is the most hurt by by that transaction. Exactly. I think that's a really important point. Uh, so what else for courts? So for family law courts, it's a problem because family courts can and do attribute the debt to the abuser. Say people are getting divorced and the family law court can attribute the debt to the abuser. The problem is that that doesn't change the victim's relationship with the creditor. If, say, it's a credit card, if the credit card debt is in her name, then even if the family court uh, awards it to the abuser, that doesn't change her contract with the creditor. So the only thing the family court can do is if a family has assets, they can award those assets to extra assets to the victim to enable her to pay off the debt that was incurred through fraud or duress. But many families do not have assets, which makes that remedy not available. So anything to say about small claims courts? With small claims court, I think it would just be the general point of listen to somebody when they tell the story. It doesn't mean they're not trying to make it up. You know, I think there's a, a tendency when people hear about coerced debt to worry about, oh, this could make two partners collusive to try to get rid of the debt. So really listen, and listen in particular to the victim's description of the domestic violence, right? If she was in a relationship where violence was pervasive and where she, for example, did not have access to any of the finances, then that's a situation that's ripe for coerced debt. So the institutions that really inadvertently amplify the effect of coerced debt are credit reporting agencies and those who develop proprietary credit scores. Are there things they can do now, even without federal law changes, to reduce the impact of coerced debt? I think one thing they can do is to work with victims to clear up coerced debt on their credit reports in particular to remove past course debt, right, debt that's already been paid or is beyond the statute of limitations but that was previously delinquent. Even though it's no longer owing, it still impacts a victim's payment history, which is the most important factor in FICO scores. Working to clear up debts that are no longer owed but that were incurred by coercion would be helpful because they won't don't actually, if the abuser was managing the account, then the victim's payment history is not necessarily relevant to her future payment history. So it still would be giving users of credit reports the, the uh, correct predictive information. Sure. So that, and I think that's worth emphasizing that if the goal is to predict future performance and an individual has not been the one to incur the debt in the first place, that's especially unnecessary to be part of the credit report and, and making it more streamlined to be able to to make those changes with with what kind of evidence would they be having to show? That's the the issue. You know, when victims try this, they often work with an advocate or a lawyer, and I mean, I think the type of evidence to show is first that the relationship was abusive and in controlling, right, in a way that the victim did not have control over the family finances, and then second, to be able to describe the specific circumstances of the opening of the account. If, it, if the debt was induced fraudulently, there are already procedures for doing this. The only problem is that they run into skepticism about, is it really real if somebody's husband, ex-husband did this? 
if it's coerced debt, you would have to discuss the circumstances and you would sort of screen for coerced debt, asking the person, why did you take out this debt or what were the circumstances surrounding this debt? And then what would have happened if you'd said no? And if she had feared for her physical safety or the physical safety of her children, that suggests duress. So it sounds like uh, these institutions would need a, a screening tool to know what questions to ask, which could be designed from your research. Yes, it could be designed from my research. And it could also, there's screening tools available online. I'm going to talk about that uh, when we discuss places the victims can go now. Sure. So let's let's also talk about regulatory agency. You've separately done work on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, and think about consumer credit regulation more generally. What can regulators do today? So in my article, Skipping Battered Credit, I argued that the Equal Credit Opportunity Act actually gives regulators the power to enact a narrow policy proposal that I made which would be to remove past coerced debt from victims' credit reports and then to remove present coerced debt when reporting to employers, landlords, and utility companies. They need to leave present coerced debt for financial lenders because they need to know the extent of someone's liabilities regardless of how they were incurred. But employers certainly don't need to know that. And I argue that landlords and utility companies can live without that because they adjust for risk in different ways than, than financial creditors do. But I think to enact that is, is very possible under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act today. In fact, there's an existing regulation that could be read to do that, but you'd need a clarifying regulation to make sure it applied to course debt. Okay, so through their rulemaking authority... There is room uh-huh. under current law to yes. address to some extent. Are there other, the CFPB has a, a range of tools. Are there any other tools you want to to mention that might be relevant? Yeah, encourage them to use supervision. CFPB is already using its supervisory powers over credit reporting agencies to improve the process, but encourage them to or require them to add more individualized decision makers, right? One of the reasons why there's so many errors in people's credit reports has been that the process is entirely automated and the CFPB could require them to have more backup if human beings who actually would understand a situation because that would be necessary to evaluate course debt. So earlier you suggested that there there are some resources where victims of coerced debt can turn for help today. Uh, I'd like for us to, to talk about the, those now to make sure that everyone who's listening, however they got this podcast, may have more resources to look to. So one general place to go is to their state council on domestic violence. Right? Every state in the U.S. has a council on domestic violence. Um, I've done a lot of work with, for example, the Texas Council on Family Violence. And then there's a national organization of the Councils on Family Violence. And I know that, for example, the Texas Council has a lot of resources on this issue. Another place, more specific place to look, is a group called the Center for Survivor Agency and Justice. And their website is www.csaj.org. They have resources such as screening tools and advocacy guides for repairing victims' credit reports. I recently did a webinar for their website. My, re- my research partner, as well as two lawyers who litigate these cases, we all did a webinar, and that's available on the website at csaj.org slash webinars. 
So that site generally, and in particular our webinar, has a lot of resources, both on screening and on legal claims that can be brought. So relatedly, to what extent in your experience are domestic violence organizations up to speed on the the credit impact? They are getting there. My research collaborator and I have done a lot of trainings for domestic violence organizations, and their general attitude has been very eager to learn. Advocates and lawyers have seen this type, these types of issues in their practices, but haven't necessarily connected all the dots. They're always eager for more information, and the domestic violence community is generally educating itself about this phenomena. We get lots of invitations to speak for this reason. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And uh, maybe one possibility is for lawyers who are more familiar with the consumer credit and bankruptcy side of things, even if they haven't directly studied coerced debt, um, can provide more information and, and, and help to their local domestic violence organizations. Yes, right. I mean, that's one thing I would very much like to see because this intersects the two areas of law. I will tell you this, because the awareness of course debt is increasing, people who understand the consumer credit system and consumers' legal rights are in high demand for these types of trainings. So that is something that, you know, a debtor or creditor's attorney who wants to get involved outside of their legal practice can do, right, is contact domestic violence organization and offer presentations or offer to, you know, be on the board and, and help out and provide their expertise in that way. So let's turn to some statutory reform ideas. Uh, you have pr- made specific statutory proposals. There may be others that you want to talk about. We'll, we'll start with the, 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 the federal level. I think you've talked about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and Equal Credit Opportunity Act. What What are your proposals? So, so my proposals, you know, I have I've only put forth this one proposal on the federal level because I've been sort of waiting to have better data before I go into more depth about what we can actually do about the underlying debt. So I have limited my proposals to credit reporting and made a fairly narrow proposal, which is that to change the law. So that a family court could make, if, a, if a, you know, a husband and wife are getting divorced and one of them alleges coerced debt, the family court could make a finding of coerced debt. And the finding would involve, one, that this relationship was domestic violence was pervasive, and two, that the actual transaction was involuntary. That court ruling, again, because it can't change the underlying debt, could then be submitted to the credit reporting agencies, which would then be, under a new law, be required to block past course debt from a victim's credit report and required to block present course debt when reporting to employers, landlords, and utility companies. So it sounds like some some of what... Uh some of the building blocks there are things that can be done today. A family law court could make those findings, but right now we can't. There's no way to require credit reporters to use the information in a particular right. way. Right. I think the CFP could do that under the EEOC, but they might not, probably couldn't go into detail about what kind of evidence would be required. So they could suggest that, you know, a certificate from a family law court was legitimate, but the ECOA, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, does give them some power to put a regulation in for what I'm discussing. What would be, and we know it's hard to get a bill to be a law, but uh, other than the, the screening questions of how to distinguish, is there any reason to think that the consumer credit industry would, op- would oppose these proposals? Certainly the credit reporting agency uh, industry 
industry would um, oppose CITES aggressively, right? They have been very aggressive about expanding the reach of credit reports into all kinds of ways, right? It's their marketing that, that has been largely responsible for the tremendous increase in use of credit reports by employers, landlords, and utilities. Credit reporting agencies see those parties as important markets and want to provide them with as many services as they can. I argue that my proposal actually increases the accuracy of victims' credit reports, and so therefore it should not harm financial creditors, particularly because they would still have access to present course debt that's still owing, and therefore should not decrease CRA business from the financial sector. Because, and then CRAs also, credit reporting agencies also have the technology to implement a proposal like this fairly easily, right? The overwhelming majority of their work is automated at this point. So adding in a different point of automation about, right, receive certificate from family court, this happens, should be relatively painless from an implementation perspective. So what about the state or local level? There's still a lot of room, especially after... Dodd-Frank for a con- consumer credit to have some enforcement at at the state law level. Do you have specific reform ideas there? Yeah, I, I think the m- most important thing that states could do is to ban employer use of credit reports. There's no data supporting a link between having poor credit and doing poorly at jobs. It's all this idea that if somebody's irresponsible with their money, they're therefore going to be irresponsible with the company, they're irresponsible at work. And there's only been two studies on this, and neither of them found a connection between owing money or having negative credit and in having a performance in the workplace or honesty in the workplace. So many states are doing this anyway because the recession has made it hard for people to get jobs, right? As as somebody put it, consumers are behind on their bills because they're out of work and then they couldn't get jobs because they were behind on their bills. Coerced debt is one more reason for that. Another thing states can do is to incorporate coerced debt into their domestic violence laws. For example, New York recently passed a law adding coerced debt to the list of family law crimes which will help victims substantially in divorce settlements or in child custody disputes if they're not married. So are there any other states, to your knowledge, who are looking to follow the lead of New York? Um, I don't know any of the words. It's on the verge of passage. I do know that the Texas Council on Family Violence is going to be pushing this at the next Texas legislature session. Our legislature meets only every other year, but that is on their agenda there. Another, speaking of Texas law, another helpful provision that Texas has is victims of domestic violence can break their leases without penalty if they need to move out. That's not directly related to course debt, but it is related to debtor-creditor rights of consumers, and that's something else states can do that's very helpful. So that limits the damages the, the victim would experience from leaving that leasehold. Exactly. So it's not coerced debt, but it's economic damage that happens when somebody tries to leave a relationship. So oh, if you absolutely. try to leave an abusive relationship, if you're on the lease, normally your landlord would be able to fine you for whatever penalties they have for breaking the lease. In Texas, they're not allowed to do that. Any other uh, reform ideas you want to d- yeah. float out there? So at the local level, there's even more that the that localities can do, particularly around restraining orders or protective orders. They have different names in different states. In Travis County, Texas, where I live, temporary restraining orders include credit freezes, and this can be helpful for 
preventing ongoing course debt, even, right, if the victim doesn't know about it, if she files for a restraining order, there's an automatic credit freeze which would halt course debt even if she didn't know about it yet. So that's a very helpful practice that counties or localities can do in their restraining order practices. Okay, so let me just emphasize that again to make sure I I understand what you said, that when there's a restraining order issued, that that would be accompanied by a credit freeze. Exactly. And how would that be implemented? So it's just that neither party is allowed to take out new credit and, you know, there's limits, right, if you have an ongoing thing that you need to put on your credit card. But the default is no taking out new credit, no spending new credit. That gives parties a certain time for attorneys to investigate whether the course debt is happening and it would stop any course debt in progress. Well, I want to thank Professor Litwin for speaking with me today. Uh, She has also provided us some great resources. I I encourage all listeners to read the articles, uh, a great set of of slides that that show the the very careful empirical research that she's done and and the findings. Um, So thank you, Angie, for being here today. You are most welcome. It's my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about this important issue. I want to thank the listeners of ABI Podcast. We'll be talking with you again soon. (laughs) 